That's what happens when you get out of the practice. Whatever else you deacons do, don't neglect to keep that rail good and strong. Well, as you came in, I couldn't tell if it was raining or not, but um, we kind of concealed the fact that the pastor's away, and I'm filling in for him today. We figured with the virus, rain, and me preaching, that would just really kill the attendance. But uh, in spite of all that, we're glad you're here. And Thad wanted me to remind you, uh, I'm going to do it before I forget, that uh, he wants you to keep going with your reading through the miracles of Jesus. And he's given you a new list on your chair for this week. And uh, find some time each day and read those passages and allow the Lord to uh, encourage you and, and teach you about how And the best is yet to come. And so uh, be diligent and read. Uh, also, I think Andrea, is she here? Oh, Andrea wants to make a, a brief announcement. All right, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Andrea Stovall. I'm the children's director here at Grace Community. And uh, we, I got some exciting news a couple of months ago that we've got the green light to go ahead and start planning for our playground that uh, we've wanted for a really long time. So we're in the initial planning phases of that. And so um, we've got a couple of fundraisers coming up to help with that. So um, we're doing a t-shirt fundraiser for uh, their Christmas shirts, long sleeve comfort color and uh, in the adult. And then there's gonna be a kid's shirt in a different uh, brand of shirt for the kids. And then uh, there's a coffee and tea fundraiser. Uh, there's some sheets out in the foyer giving more info on that. Uh, it's also on our website. If you go to our website and click on ministries and click on the children's tab, the order forms and all the info's there and you can pay online. If you wanna pay in person, there's envelopes out there. You can leave a check. Um, so anyway, check it out. Think about if you'd like to do that. Uh, you can also just contribute, uh, make a contribution towards the playground. So. Hopefully, next year will not be like this year, and uh, we can get back to children's ministries. But I do want to tell you that uh, through, through this pandemic, we have been doing lots of virtual online things for the kids here at the church, keeping them connected um, through mail-outs and online videos. So um, children's ministry is still going, and they're still here in the word of the Lord. So thank you all. Thank you, Ms. Andrea. We appreciate your, your diligence and trying to find creative ways to you know, work around this uh, corona virus problem. And uh, we not only pray for our children, we, we pray for you because uh, you are such a valuable part of the ministry to our children here uh, at Grace. Uh, I'm going to read a passage of scripture for you this morning. I, I want you to stay seated. Uh, you'll get to stand in a minute to sing. And uh, this is a, uh, a few verses. But I, I want to go to the gospel according to Mark. 
and I want to begin to read a part of chapter 1 of the gospel. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this time of fellowship and worship together, we just thank you for the opportunity, the privilege that we can come. Uh, we've been dealing as uh, humans with this virus for quite a while now. It can get wearisome, but in retrospect, I know it, it can't even begin to compare with the things that our Lord experienced while he was walking this earth. But we do thank you that it's possible for us to be here today and to uh, not only uh, fellowship, but to worship you, to acknowledge that there's no one other than you. Therefore, there can be no one like you. And you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures as a God of holiness, a God of righteousness, but a God also of love and mercy and grace. And we thank you that we've come to know you through your son, Christ Jesus, who showed the measure of your love for us by going to the cross and taking our place. And our sin was put upon him, and Jesus paid it all. 
all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We thank you that in Christ we have a new identity. We have new possibilities with an eternal future as believers in Christ. So as we listen to the words of uh, your message today, uh, as we uh, contemplate these truths and how they impact our lives, may you be glorified. As we sing, may you be glorified. May this be a time to just open our hearts and show uh, our, our joy and, and delight and thanksgiving to you for all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, guys, and worship the Lord together this morning.
him because he's worthy, because he reigns, because he's holy, for all those reasons. Y'all sing with me.
I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. The world offers us a lot of things, guys, that try to fill the void that only God can fill. That's what this song is about. You know, the psalmist said, your love is better than life. And that's, man, that's a powerful statement when you think about it. So y'all think about that as we sing this song for you. It's called Better. better 
Thank you, praise team. Doesn't it soothe the heart to hear melodies and see words that honor the Lord and remind us of just how glorious He was? And it, uh, I don't see how a Christian can avoid uh, these things because they're therapeutic. They refresh our hearts and minds and help us filter out the things that the old nature tries to bring in to minimize the work uh, of Christ uh, because in our old self, we want the glory. Uh, we'd like to think that if there is a heaven, I'll get there my way, but uh, our way will never work because Jesus said, uh, you must have a righteousness that is of the righteousness of God. And the only way to get that righteousness is that it must be imputed. And it's imputed through faith when we put our trust in Christ as the one to whom God imputed our sin. And he paid the penalty. Well, you can go home now. <laughs> For 45 years, uh, I was a pastor and... My life was regulated by Sundays. Uh, I had a whole week of things I had to do, but if I needed to get away, I could get away on Monday and Tuesday or Thursday and Friday. But Sunday, Wednesdays were important because of prayer meeting and, and Bible studies, but Sunday was the big day. We had at one time two different services, but one was in mo uh, the morning and one was in the evening, and they were different wasn't the same sermon each time. So I was always gearing up for Sunday. I was always preparing for Sunday. But I knew what was coming because I would choose a book to preach through, as our pastor Thad uh, does. Or I would find a topic that was relevant to the church, and then I would find scriptural passages that develop that topic. That's called systematic exposition or topical exposition. But once I chose a book, I knew that for the next 30 Sundays, I was going through the book of whatever, or I was taking a 12 Sunday series on 
a certain topic. Uh, but today, um, being asked to speak today, they had asked me actually months ago, and I said, oh, yes, I'd love to. And I started thinking and said, Lord, give me, a, give me an idea. Lead me to a text that, that our people need to, to be confronted with. And in the course of doing that, I knew that it'll be one sermon. It can't be a series. It'll be one sermon. Maybe months before I preach again, it may be never after I preach today. We'll have to wait and see. But I knew that today is not a series of sermons. It's one sermon. So, Lord, what will it be? And after weeks and weeks of thinking and flipping through Scripture and studying, I had come down to a couple of passages in the book of Zechariah, which are prophetic, but they're very relevant to, to the, our future. And I also had a passage in Nehemiah that I thought was very helpful. It, it emphasized the issue of rebuilding. And the church is always having to be in, in rebuild mode because we're very fluid. We're not static. People come and people go. And these viruses bring the church down different paths and, and it, it's difficult to I'll try to get back to the way things were. Things may never be the way they were. And we'll have to learn how to minister through the way things are. But uh, last Sunday, Thad got up and he said, I want everybody to read through the miracles of Christ. And so I said, okay. So I started reading and I got to Mark and bing! I thought I heard a bell. It turned out to be uh, the TV. But then I, I thought I heard a voice, this is it, preach on this. And I thought I heard the angelic choir singing, which, which confirmed it. And, and there really was no angelic choir. I'm not sure angels even sing. And I didn't hear a voice from God, but I, I did feel a, an inner compulsion to want to stay on that, that particular text. And that text today is Mark chapter 2. Uh, by the way, I also had a passage I was working on, on 2 Timothy chapter 2. And Thad came in my office one day and he said, uh, let's talk about this passage. So we did. And then the next, the last Sunday he preached on it. So there went 2 Timothy 2. So I kept the, one, the other ones in secret. I didn't want him to know about him. I didn't want him to steal my bacon. But in Mark chapter 2, we have this wonderful account of Jesus healing this paralytic. And uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's just so full of, of insights that uh, I think we're going to enjoy looking into it together. And as I often do, I, I, I always want to make sure that my interpretation of a text uh, fits the context in which that text is, is, is rooted. And so I wanted to do some, some little background uh, stuff before we, you know, as we get started. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, even near the door, and he was speaking the word, and that, that is tan lagan, it's the word lagos. Uh, he was speaking the word to them. And when I read that, I said, wow, Jesus was speaking the word to them. And, and the word was Tan Lagan. But then I, I 
I suddenly remembered that um, uh, in John, at the beginning of John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. And that's the same word, but in a different grammatical, it's ha uh, lagos, the logos. Uh, In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the Lagos was God. I thought, that's interesting. And if you remember your English training, I had 12 years of English training, not counting university time. Uh, And I used that to my advantage on my application to Dallas Seminary. They said, have you had any foreign language study? I said, 12 years. And they accepted me. And when I got there, Dr. Pentecost says, what languages have you studied? You say you had 12 years. I said, English. He said, that's your foreign language? I said, it was foreign to me. (laughs) And Dr. Pentecost and I, we we got along okay. Uh, One day he asked me, he said, Marange, we're still trying to find out who okayed your application. And I said, well, good luck with that. I've already had somebody go in and steal the files. I'm here, deal, deal with it. But in English, we learn that there are some verbs that are called transitive verbs and some are called intransitive. Or another word is there are linking verbs. And linking verbs uh, link the, the, the nominative with, with the, the, uh, the, the objective together. And so when it says that uh, the word was God, You could literally flip that and say God was the word. Both of those statements would be true because they are equal. Doesn't matter which side of was it's on. Whatever's on this side of was and whatever is on this side of was can be flipped either way. So you can say God uh, God was, uh, the word was God. That's a true statement. And God was the word. That's a true statement. So John is making a a clear statement regarding the full deity of Christ. He was the Word. He was as much God as God the Father was God. Uh, In his incarnate state, he, he veiled the display of his divine attributes. Whenever he did something that was miraculous or or in in tune with deity, it was uh, in obedience to the will of the Father and by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. But that was a part of, of his becoming the incarnate God-man. He did not voluntarily use the attributes that he has had for all eternity. So the incarnation was the eternal uh, uh, Son of God didn't give, give away anything, didn't become less, he became more. Because to his deity, he added a human nature, one without sin. And he accomplished that by being born of a virgin. It was the Spirit of God who conceived Christ in the womb of Mary. And so he was not subject to the imputation of Adam's sin, which has come to every man who's been born ever since Adam ate the avocado. Isn't that interesting to know? So here, when it says that Jesus was teaching the Word, if Jesus is the Word, then uh, you've got the Word 
teaching the Word. And, and that's probably the greatest educational situation you can ever hope for. Uh, you want to learn truth when you're being educated, but sometimes you have to have a teacher who studied under somebody who under somebody who knew, uh, who, who discovered that, that, that truth or whatever. Uh, as a Christian, everything we're learning about God, we're learning from God. God is teaching his people. He is truth, and he's teaching truth. And that's probably as pure as truth can ever be. And a, and a major observation comes, comes out of that, that when Jesus was speaking the word, when he was the, the Logos to them, he was literally speaking himself, the living, revealed Logos to them. So the word was speaking the word. And back to Mark, when Jesus started preaching in the Galilee, it tells us that he was speaking the word. His popularity was at, at an all-time high. They were flocking to him to hear his teachings because it wasn't like the stuff they'd been hearing from their religious leaders, uh, just a lot of cotton candy. You know, it may sound good for a minute, but then it's gone. But the things that Jesus was teaching, it, it hit home. It hit home, and it fed them spiritually, just like we, when we study the Word, we're being fed. And there, there ought to be long-term uh, long uh, periods of enjoying and benefiting from the things that we hear and the things that we learn. Um, but he was popular, and when he was speaking the Word, uh, these people were flocking to him, and not only was he teaching, but he was healing. Uh, uh, he didn't heal everybody, uh, otherwise everybody would have been healed. But he, he healed on a select basis to demonstrate his deity. And we'll see in this text in a minute that when the Pharisees saw him uh, uh, telling people that their sins are forgiven, they took that as blasphemy because only God can forgive sin. So if you're telling people your sins are forgiven, you are claiming to be God. And Jesus would say, ding, you finally figured it out. If that's what it takes to get to you, fine. But that's the whole point. I wanted you to come to the realization that I'm not some madman. I'm not some, some rebel. I'm not some political a rabble rouser. I'm God, I'm the God of creation, and I've come to claim my kingdom on earth, as was promised to Abraham all those generations ago. And uh, getting a little bit ahead of myself, but that's all right. Now, also, these verses that we look at, if, if you have a, a mind like mine, you're saying, wait a minute, but I got some questions. Uh, one question would be, what was the gospel of God? It says that Jesus was preaching the gospel of God. Well, in this case, the answer is simple because it's given to us in the remaining words of that verse. He was preaching the gospel of God and saying, now whatever he is saying is the word of uh, uh, the gospel of God. So what's he saying? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what gospel was he preaching? Was he preaching that Jesus died on the cross and was risen from the dead? Uh, you know, the, the, the gospel we preach today is the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection and the fact that his death atoned for the sins of the world. But that's not what Jesus was saying back then. The gospel back then was the gospel of the kingdom that God had promised to Abraham uh, land and a seed and blessing. And the land would be the literal land. They were in a major part of it, but not all of it. Not all that God had told them he was going to give them. The seed was present in two ways. First of all, the multitude of Jews, they all came from one man. Not at one time, but the, the, the tree goes back to Abraham. Uh, God out of Abraham brought Isaac, and Isaac brought Jacob, and Jacob brought the 12 sons, and the 12 sons brought scores and scores of people. And by the time they were ready to leave Egypt under Moses, they estimate conservatively that there were over 2 million Jews at that time. And they left the land and um, left the land of Egypt and came into the promised land eventually. Uh, there, there were problems along the way. But what he's saying is that the, the time has come. God is ready to put the pieces together and fulfill what he promised to Abraham. By the way, that seed was not only the multitude itself, but the seed was one particular man. He was a man who would be the son of Abraham, obviously, but he would also be the son of David. And he would be born of royal birth. He was of the ruling class of, of, of Judah. And his name was Jesus. Now, there was no kingdom at that time. They were under the control of Rome. But God brought Christ to the nation Israel at that time, and a legitimate offer was being made by the king. Uh, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus, as the, the coming king, talked about his kingdom. He talked about the ethics of his kingdom. He talked about the way uh, he saw uh, righteousness as opposed to the way the Pharisees saw righteousness. The Pharisees saw righteousness as the skin on the outside of your body. That was it. It was superficial. And Jesus said, you say thou shalt not kill. So as long as you don't murder somebody, you're keeping the law. You're righteous. Jesus said, but I say don't hate. See, hate is something inside. And God says that is as much sin as the outward act of pulling the trigger. You say, thou shalt not commit adultery. We don't commit adultery. We're righteous. God says, but I say, don't lust. It's as much wrong to have the internal lust as it is to commit the external act. You say that thou shalt not covet. And we don't covet anything outwardly 
but inside they coveted everything. They wanted to rob their, their people blind, and, and they were false shepherds. They weren't concerned with the, the sheep. They were concerned with how they could fleece the sheep for their own profit. When they had their uh, sacrifices going on at the temple, uh, these poor people would bring probably the only animal they had to offer it on behalf of, of their sin. And they would have somebody inspect that lamb or whatever and say, no, nope, it's defective, can't use it. Well, that's the only one I have. Well, you can trade it in. We got, we got one for you. So trade it in, and you'd end up losing money, and then they'd give you one who they had taken away from the guy before you. And they'll take yours and give it to the guy that comes up next. It was called Anna's Bazaar. It was so crooked. Jesus went in there one day and just turned the tables over. Now, that was his way of saying, I got a better idea. I'm not coming in here to try to whitewash what you've done. I'm bringing something brand new. I'm bringing an internal righteousness because the people that believe in me will be imputed with God's righteousness instead of trying to accomplish a false righteousness, a self-righteousness, which may be better than 30% of the other people you know, but it's not better than God. And that's how good you have to be. People that believe that you have to earn heaven, I ask them, how good do you have to be before you know that you've been good enough? And you can read that Bible from the cover to the maps, and you'll never find it ever answering that question, because that question is invalid. Heaven is not in, about what you're going to earn and what you're going to do. Heaven is about what he did for us and our faith in him. And he took our sin and nailed it to the cross and to the believer. He takes his righteousness and imputes it into your heart, into your life. So your acceptance before God is not based on what you've done. It's based on what he did. It's grace, and it's 100% grace. God won't even let you have one stitch in your celestial gown. It's got to be 100% grace or nothing. That's tough for men to, to take because our pride says, well, i got to have at least a little bit of it. No, you can't even have a little bit of it. Nothing. You have to say, it's all the grace of God, and he loved me enough to send his son for me. And that's what the gospel of, of, of God was, that the kingdom that had been promised for generations, the kingdom, it's here. It's here in the sense that the king is here. And if the king is here, then he can offer a kingdom. And the problem was not the king or the concept of the kingdom. The problem was that the people rejected the king. And by rejecting the king, God had to postpone the kingdom until another generation that would accept. And that'll be at the second coming. God will so change their hearts that they will uh, praise him and, 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 and uh, glorify and worship. You remember at, at the so-called, uh, the week before the uh, cross, the triumphal, the triumphal entry, and Jesus rode in on a donkey and they were laying branches before him and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know, 
Uh, and Jesus went off into the mountainside in Luke 19. And he said, oh, he said, oh, Israel, if only you had known, you know, you, you kill the prophets. Uh, you reject all that God brings to you. He said, you don't know that this was your day, the day that makes for peace. And, and in essence, uh, he was saying, you're rejecting what God had promised to the prophet Daniel. That from the day they started rebuilding the Jerusalem, 173,880 days later, Messiah would appear. And triumphal entry, Messiah was appearing. He was saying, here I am. I'm the king. Who's with me? And the nation, the nation, basically, I think the majority of the nation would have accepted him. But the ruler said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You know, you people, you're farmers, go, go, or you're ranchers, go tend your sheep. We went to Jerusalem prep. We went to Hebrew high. We studied under the great rabbis. We'll tell you when we find Messiah. And they said, well, we sure thought it, that was him, but I guess they know best. They, they got the degree and all that. And misled by their own leaders, they rejected Christ. And at his trial, when Pilate tried his best to find a way out of it, and he said, uh, today's the day when each year when we take a prisoner and set him free. Who would you like? And they said, bring us one. And they brought uh, Barabbas, who was, he was uh, the most, oh, he was, he, was, he was the most unlikable person in all of, of his generation. He, he was a terrorist. He had no concern for, for good of any kind. And he was where he belonged, in prison. And they said, all right, make a choice. You can have Jesus, the son of, of, of God, or you can have Barabbas, who was also the son of somebody. And they said, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Well, what do you want us to do with this Jesus? With the assumption that he's done nothing wrong. Crucify him. Crucify him. And so they did. And as he hung on the cross on the tree, they put a sign above his head saying, King of the Jews. And again, they said, no, 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 take that down. Put one up there that says he claimed to be king of the Jews. They denied his person. They denied his work. They denied it all. And Jesus said, this generation will never see the coming kingdom. But that doesn't mean that there won't be a coming kingdom. He said, this generation won't, won't see the kingdom. They didn't understand, as Paul taught in Romans 11, that God took the tree of of the promise and he took some of the natural branches that were were rotten and he took them out and then he took wild branches and he grafted them into that tree and the wild branches are gentiles and that's the current situation we as the church who are mainly gentiles we are enjoying the benefits of the promise that god made to israel and the nation Israel is on the outside looking in. But Paul says one day, why can't God take those natural branches and regraft them back into the tree? So that one day, not only will the church enjoy eternal blessing, but Israel 
God's covenant people, they will be brought back into a right relationship with their Messiah King. So, the gospel of God, it was a gospel that there's a kingdom about to be offered because the king has arrived, and it was Christ Jesus. Another question, uh, and it, it comes along with the first one. In what sense can Jesus proclaim? Wait a minute, I just did that one. Yeah. It's this third question. How do we interpret baptize? You remember early in Mark, we talked about John baptizing and then Jesus uh, uh, being baptized. Uh, and in chapter 1, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all of the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. In verse 7, and he was preaching and saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what, what, do, what does it mean? And you may know or you may not. If, if not, then you're going to learn right now. The word baptize is not an English word. At least it didn't used to be. Uh, in the Greek text, it was the word baptizo. And when the translators came to it, they didn't know how to translate it. Because it was translated in different ways. For instance, uh, it could be translated literally to immerse or to dip. And that's why Baptists are so big on immersion, and rightly so. I, I, I agree with them. And when, when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized in the Jordan River, and it says, and when he came up out of the water, the dove descended and the voice of God. Well, how do you come up out of the water if you were sprinkled? You know, it's, it's more likely if you come up out of the water, you were down under the water. But in a literal way, uh, it was to immerse, to dip. So maybe some people would see John the Baptist and call him Johnny the Dipper. I don't know. But uh, an example of, of that would be the fuller's trade. The fuller was the guy that dyed the wool. And he would take the gray wool, which was a natural, ugly color, and then he would put it in vats of dye. And it would come up red or come up blue or whatever color they were going to dye it. But he dipped it, he immersed it into the, the, into the vat. But there were other times when it could have a non-literal usage, and that would be to identify with or to change one's identification. The fuller, when he pulled the wool out of the vat, he could easily say, this wool has changed its identification. It was gray, now it's blue. Uh, it has changed its identification. And I think that's the meaning of believer's baptism. We're not baptized to be saved. We're baptized to change, to, to physically or uh, visibly announce that we have changed our identification. We used to belong to the world. 
We used to belong to Satan, and we've come to Christ, and now we belong to Christ, and we belong to him. And the church is our, our home. The church is our family. We've changed our identification, and we do that publicly so that people will know that we expect him to walk like a believer now, and we want to help him grow in you know, discipleship and all those things. 1 Corinthians 10, great example. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, <clears throat> that our fathers were all under the cloud. You remember, they, and they wandered. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. They were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, referring to the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, if you're going to take that as immersion, tell me who got wet. Nobody got wet. Somebody sent me this cartoon the other day. It's supposed to be down on the floor of the Red Sea. The walls of water are on each side, and the parade of people are coming through. And of course, they sent me this because the, 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 the joke is there's one in every crowd. You see him? And they, they, they said, that's you. He's fishing. And I don't think anybody had time to fish as they were moving through, uh, through the cloud. But, but that's what happened. Nobody got wet. So how were they baptized? They identified with Moses. They had to make a choice. If we stay here, Pharaoh's going to kill us. But if we follow Moses, we'll be delivered. And so they identified with Moses. They were baptized with Moses into the sea. And it has nothing to do with who got wet. It has to do with identification. Moses was their savior for that circumstance. Follow him and you'll be delivered from uh, uh, the Red Sea. And so for that reason, translators never translate baptizo. They created an English word, baptize. And so you read it and think that, well, that's, that's an interpretation. It means to dip. Well, it, it could be, but in other cases, that's not the, the proper interpretation. But they leave it for you to decide. They, they don't. They do that with a lot of words. It's called transliteration. They simply spell them in Greek letters and create an English word that is spelled uh, from Greek letters. All right. So uh, that, that question, uh, how do we interpret baptize? Well, uh, in the case of John's baptism, he was saying turn away from corrupt Judaism. His baptism, if you, if you allow John to baptize you, you were saying, I now follow John. I believe his message, that there's a coming one who is mightier than anybody else. I no longer want to be identified with corrupt Judaism and the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so it was a way of changing their identification. They identified with Moses, us, uh, with John, and his gospel. Well, what about Jesus' baptism? Why was he baptized? For the forgiveness of his sins? He didn't have any. You remember? He was undefiled. He was innocent. He was, he was holy. So why, was, why did he allow John to baptize him in the Jordan River? 
well, to prove once and for all that we ought to be immersed. No, no. I think that he was baptized because he was saying, I'm identifying with John, just as you did. I'm identifying with John's message, and I'm telling you that I'm the one he's talking about, the one that he says that he is preparing the way for. I'm him, and I'm here. So let's get on with, with the work. And he was identifying himself as the king, the Messiah, who had come in fulfillment of God's promises. And if the king's there, then there has to be the offer of a kingdom. And if they would have accepted Christ as their Messiah, uh, probably the Romans would have crucified Christ anyway because Rome wouldn't allow another king. They had their uh, Tiberius, uh, and he, the emperor was the only king they, they wanted. But after Christ's death and resurrection and a short uh, time with the Father, uh, he would have come. And, and whether or not uh, the church would have been born, uh, I don't know. Paul says that he received what he knew about the church, but he received it after the fact. So if, if there was going to be a church age, it probably would have been a little briefer than 2,000 years. But that's, nevertheless, that's not the way it happened. They didn't accept him. They rejected him. And in doing so, that generation forfeited their right to see the inauguration of the kingdom of God. It'll come later, still future to, to our day. Uh, all right. And then uh, there was a third. Uh, when he's mentioned, John mentioned Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's a different type of baptism. That's the work of the Spirit in placing you into the body of Christ, uh, you know, giving you a relationship to Christ. Uh, but he mentions that that has to do with the Spirit of God. Well, th that's spiritual regeneration. Uh, that's the work of the Spirit as opposed to what John does or, 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 or what, what pastors do. All right, now we're ready to look more more detail at the text. We can say, uh, here comes comes the miracle. And the first, the next three verses, verses three, four, and five, I'm calling this the desperation. When you look at, at verse three, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him on account of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, do you really think that the paralytic was hoping to hear that? <laughs> Probably not. He didn't go through all that trouble. I say he, his friends, didn't go through all that trouble. I mean, uh, he probably thought that my sins were being dealt with through the synagogue and the temple. He was there to be healed. He knew that Jesus could heal him of his paralysis. But that's not what Jesus told him. He said, your sins are forgiven. Now, at this point, we have to become suspicious of what 
what is Jesus doing? What's he trying to do? He is aware of what's going on. He's aware of who is, is present in, in that, that room. Uh, uh, back in chapter 1, Jesus healed a, a leper. And then he told him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Why would he do that? Well, because that was the way things were done. He was supposed to go and show himself to a priest who would verify and validate the miracle and then prescribe to him what sacrifice he would make uh, in, in thanksgiving uh, to God. But I think Jesus also knew that if, when he went and showed himself to the priest, the priest would say, what? Who, who did what? He said, it's me, Jimmy the leper. I've been living outside the, the wall for six years. I, I saw Jesus in Nazareth, and he healed me. Well, uh, you know, you must be an imposter. No, it's me. And his buddies would say, no, it is him. I recognize the mole on, on, his, on his cheek or whatever. It would, have, it would have blown the priest's mind. He probably had never, ever seen a genuine miracle in his life. And now he's got to deal with, with this. And who did this? And, and how did he do it? He just spoke it. I didn't have to take a potion. I didn't have to buy a prayer cloth and, and wash my face with it for seven days and pray over it and do all these things. I, I, well, I had to tear up a roof, and my buddies let me down. And we kind of disrupted a, a little Bible study they were having. But he looked at me, and he, he knew that I, I was paralyzed. Why would we do all this if I could walk? And he said, your sins are forgiven. Well, we with the leper. I'm talking, this, is, this is the leper. Everybody knew who he was. But in, in back in chapter 2, in that room, Jesus knew that that. He was expecting this guy to come. And he wanted that room to be crowded, and he wanted it to have certain people there. And uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, I call it the confrontation. It says, there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Um, Luke gives us a little more detail in his account, Luke says there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now why would a Pharisee from Jerusalem come to Capernaum up in the Galilee? You know, th that wasn't a vacation desti destination for Pharisees. Uh, that's out of place. Why is he in that room? Well, that priest with the leper, he reported him to the, the up-the-ups, and it came to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and they said, send a delegation of people up there and find out what's going on. Find out who this guy really is. And so they're in that room, along with all the villagers and the fishermen, probably smell like fish, and here's these prim and proper, hoity-toity Pharisees with their robes and all that, and their phylacteries. 
And here they are sitting there and being pushed against, you know, and you're messing up my fur. You know, they, they didn't want to be there, but they had to be there because they had an assignment. They had to check out Jesus. And this man comes down, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And so they react, and, and uh, they say, uh, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, that, that was an, aff- uh, an affront to them. That's worthy of death. You could be stoned to death. You're claiming to be God. And of course, Jesus is saying, <laughs> you won't get any argument out of me. <laughs> I am claiming to be God. Now, what are you going to do about it? Falls in your court. He wanted them to, to have to be confronted with who he was because he knew it was important that if the leaders wouldn't accept him, then the people wouldn't follow. The people were being led blindly by these, these evil, unrighteous, spiritual uh, washouts who were in charge of the nation Israel's spiritual life. And Jesus knew that he had to reach them, and then the people would follow. And so he wants him them to go back to the Sanhedrin council and say, fellas, he claims to be God. We got it. We, we're witnesses to it. But he also backed it up. Uh, he healed that guy and, and made him you know, get up and walk. But I want you to notice... Um, Jesus, after, uh, after they say, why are you reasoning? Let me start over. After, immediately, Jesus became aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. And so he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? And immediately, I can hear him saying, who, who, who said that? I didn't say that. How did he know that? Did, did somebody leak it? No, we didn't always say anything. Jesus was able to read their minds. After all, he is God. And one of the things that he d- accomplished in this confrontation, he displayed that he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows things that are secret. He's omnipotent. He can heal diseases. Uh, he is divine. Uh, he's claiming to be the, the son of God. And so uh, Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? What should I have told him? What would be easier, to tell him your sins are forgiven or to tell him arise, take up your pallet and go home? Well, you don't have to go to Harvard to figure this one out. Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. If I say, David, your sins are forgiven. You'd like to think so, maybe, but how would you know? Well, you'd have to wait until you died and see where you went. And if you didn't go where you wanted to go, you'd say, that guy lied to me. But there's no way to to check that out. I mean, how do we know if you have the power to forgive sins? But on the other hand, if I say, David, throw away those crutches and get up and walk. 
we can find out if I really have the ability to heal you or not. I'll push him out of that chair. And if you catch yourself and stand up, then I am who I am. If you fall on your face, then I'll lie to you. The thing is, though, Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say the easier thing because it was the easier thing. He said the easier thing because he wanted the Pharisees and the leaders to be confronted with that I'm claiming to be God. Because by their own words, only God can forgive sins. And so if you're claiming to forgive sins, you're claiming to be God. <laughs> he says, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, in order for you to know that I really meant it when I said your sins are forgiven, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, take up your pallet and go home. And guess what happened? Validation and glorification. He arose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. See, that was glorifying God to say that here's this man, whoever he is, he's doing what no man we know has ever done. Well, that's, that's the very definition of God. Everything he does is unique. Everything he does can't be compared to anything because it's above everything. Did you get that? It sounded good. I like the way I phrased that, but did it make sense? I would expect that everything Christ does is that we've never seen anything like this before, unless he did it somewhere else. We've never seen anybody but him do things like this before. We've never seen anything like this from our religious leaders. To the contrary, you know, they, they are as corrupt as we are. We just can't do anything about it right now. I have friends in, in a, a, a part of Christendom where they put a lot of faith and their, their leaders. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that it breaks their hearts and it, it shakes them to the foundation of their faith when they find out that these men are even more corrupt than they are, and yet they're in charge of hearing you confess your sins and give you forgiveness. Well, what about their sins? Who, who heals, who hears their sins and grants them uh, uh, forgiveness and all that? The only one who forgives sins is God. And when Jesus went to the cross as God, he paid the penalty for our sins fully, completely. Christ cried out to tell us thy. It is finished. It is finished. That means it'll never have to happen again. It was a one-time thing. And it was so appropriate and powerful and according to the measure of the need, that it satisfied the problem for all eternity. Everybody who comes to Christ will have eternal life with him for all eternity. No questions asked. Now, I'm not talking about, well, what happens if you sin as a believer? You'll get spanked as a believer. Just as your earthly father ought to spank you when you're a kid and you disobey, your spiritual father can spank you when you disobey. And sometimes he can take you to the woodshed 
and it make you hate the day they invented trees. Some people don't realize how hard God the Father can be on his children when they continue to just disobey and disobey and shame him instead of glorifying him. That's a motivation for us to to want to please him, not ignore him, or think, well, you know, I got the rock, I got a piece of the rock in my pocket, I got a trump card, I got diplomatic immunity. Well, you may have diplomatic immunity immunity from from other so-called gods, but the God of heaven, he says, we don't have to worry about other authorities. We take care of our own. And that means discipline. The writer of the Hebrews says, what, what kind of a father does not discipline his son? Not a good one. Not a good one. And so they, they, he, he went, got up and went out of sight, and they were amazed and glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Wow. Well, conclusion. Um, that was Luke 5. Yep, I'm not going to do that. The reason that we've come today and the reason that we come every Sunday or whatever Sundays that we do come, we come because we want something that the world can't give us. We, we live out in a world that doesn't know these things. And they can't encourage us in our spiritual life. They can't show us things that will, will help us draw closer to our God and Savior. It's the church. We come here on Sunday because we want to hear the truth. We want to hear the word. We want to hear what God says, not what philosophers say. And we come here because we enjoy to fellowship. And we come to pray. To, to Sing praise. I, I love our taking the time to, to, to sing praises to God. He's the one that loved us enough to die for us. He's the one that rose from the dead and guarantees us a life after death. He's the one who has changed our, our life in, in every way you could imagine. Uh, he's the one who obeyed, who loved his father and loved us enough to come and die in our place. And that was a horrible thing for him to do. You talk about humbling yourself. Just think, from the moment he entered the human race as the incarnate Son of God, he was a baby boy who had to have his diaper changed by his mother three, four, five times a day. The eternal Son of God having to deal with dirty diapers. Oh, I hate that. Glenda would always say, I'm going off for a couple hours to get some things. I've changed all their diapers. They're all good. Just let them lay there and they'll sleep and you watch your ball game. She doesn't even get out of the driveway. When the house starts smelling like, like it's, a, it's a sewer line. And I go and I, I check them and all three of them, dirty diapers. And by the time Glenda gets back, I've messed up. 15 or 20 of her bath towels, all of her hand towels. I've used about seven or eight of those sticky diapers. Once they hit something stick, that's it. Throw them away. You, you'll never get it open again. 
And she walks in and says, what happened? A tornado? I said, no, the kids had dirty diapers. But Jesus allowed himself to have to go through that, the Son of God. He had to crawl before he could walk. Jesus having to crawl. I mean, why not just fly? He had to learn to talk. He had to go through the, whatever they say, baby talk. I love to watch parents try to talk baby talk as though it's going to make a difference. They got to understand you. (laughs) He went to school. He obeyed his parents. In his eternal sonship, he participated in fun things like creation of the universe. He set the stars and the planets and the moons in place. Genesis 1 tells us that that was an action of the triunity. Let us, let us, let us. He created living things and designed our internal organs and designed how our bodies would be nourished and able to function according to his his design. And we come here to worship him, forever giving him praise for loving us enough to die for us. We accept him as our Savior, literally. He went to the cross and shed his blood to atone for our sin. Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, righteousness is tied to Christ. You want God's righteousness? You got to come to Jesus. There's no other source. And it's easy to honor him and worship him in this place. This room was dedicated for this. It's dedicated really for no other purpose. But we're going to leave in a few minutes. And we're going to go out there. And they hate Christ. They hate those who follow Christ. They follow false gods. And they try to push those false gods onto God's people. If they can't deny us who we are, Satan's next best thing is to keep us from honoring Christ and glorifying him. We do it in here without any trouble. It's natural. But when we go out there, who do we worship? And how do we worship when we go out there? That's the challenge. A bunch of people got into a room where Jesus was, And Jesus proclaimed his his deity, and he did a miracle. And they left that place amazed. They were were saying, this has never happened before. It blows my circuits, all the, the phrases that you could say. But we don't know. Some of them may have gone back to their houses and their neighborhoods and their offices and started telling people about Jesus. That's what he would want them to do. Others might have said, well, it was, that was a great show, but that's not the real world. And I got to go back and be a part of the real world. What we do in here, some people might say, this isn't the real world. Y'all are hiding. And God commissioned us not to be in a room hiding. He commissioned us to go out and make disciples of the nations. And we're not going to do that unless we're as committed to honoring him out there as we are to honoring him in here. So I challenge you, 
How far does your circle spread? How far does your worshiping Christ and honoring him and obeying him go? Does it go as far as you go? Or does it stay within the walls of this building or another building like this building? That's the challenge for us. Christ is our Savior. He's our Lord. But he wants obedience because he works through us to reach others. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for allowing us to revisit a wonderful scene where our Savior was able to so wonderfully display his deity and his omniscience and his omnipotence. And he so easily just dealt with these Pharisees and forced them to have to deal with a question they didn't want to answer. Who do you say that I am? And I pray, Father, that as believers, we will never lose our desire and our joy and our need for fellowship with fellow believers. And we'll never, I pray that we'll never lose our desire to hear the word of God spoken to us. And as we study your word, Father, it, it nourishes us. It is the lifeblood to the believer. It is what blood is to our physical bodies. But Father, may we not settle just for being here. Give us a desire to live for Christ there, to want to be a part of what you're doing to bring Christ to the world. There's never been a better time. There's never been a greater time when people have needs. They're questioning everything. They don't understand. They don't know if this is ever going to go away. People have lost jobs. They've lost security. They've lost members of their family. This is a time when we can be out there giving them real answers, giving them hope, a hope that has eternity tied into it. And so we do thank you for today. Thank you for the love you allow us to display for one another, and, and thank you for the Word of God. It never gets old. It never gets irrelevant. It's always refreshing. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we're dismissed.